Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2015 Phoenix Gospel Truth Seminar. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. I want to share some things with you during this uh, week that the Lord spoke specifically to me. I mean, these are things that He showed me a long time ago, but this goes back to on November the 4th at 3.30 in the morning, I was sound asleep and the Lord woke me up by talking to me. The way that he usually speaks to me is I just know things in my heart and it's things I perceive. But this was like a third person talking to me. And he said, I, I was uh, in a sound sleep and he just woke me up and said, this is why I raised you up is to change people's opinion of me. And as their opinion of me changes, their life will change and then they will change the world. And I mean, it was so profound. I was just totally asleep when the Lord spoke that to me and, and it woke me up and I tried to go back to sleep and I just laid there for hours thinking about that. And you know, that pretty much sums up everything God's called me to do. And I really believe that one of the worst things that has happened is people's opinion of God and the way that they view Him. They don't see Him correctly. If you knew who the Lord was, if you had a proper view of the Lord, I guarantee you we wouldn't have any trouble believing God, trusting God for any single thing. But the truth is God has been misrepresented and lied about more than any person ever has. You know, all of us get slandered and people take things and say things about us that aren't accurate. And I, I know that happens to all of us. I've had my fair share. And there, I've read some of the things that people say about me and it's just terrible. And, um, and you know what? If people believe that stuff, well then I guarantee you it's not going to make them want to listen to me or receive from me and stuff because it taints the whole thing. It, it affects people. And God has been slandered more than any person. I mean, we even have it written down in our contracts about acts of God. And we blame that on fires and tornadoes and earthquakes and things like this. And we blame God for anything and everything. And the sad fact is that religion has misrepresented God big time. I mean, big time. And people have a total wrong impression of the true nature and character of God. And so these are things that I've been teaching on. Matter of fact, one of the very first times I ever taught this was in Gospel Echoes over in Mesa. And I taught on the difference between the old and the new covenant law, that the old covenant law gave not an inaccurate, but an incomplete uh, picture of God. And because of that, people have come to these conclusions that God is this harsh, God and they don't understand the goodness and the mercy of God. And so that's what I'm going to focus most of my time this week talking about. And I just want to tell you that if you could really see God as he truly is, that you would love him, you would trust him, you would be healed, you would be delivered. There would be no such thing as emotional scars and problems. And I know that many of you right now are thinking, well, you just don't know what I've been through. You just don't know what Jesus has done for you. Whatever you have experienced is insignificant compared to what Jesus has done to fix your problem. That is absolutely true. And we get to focusing on our problem and sometimes are even taught that God is the source of your problem. And that is wrong. You know, before I get into my main message, I just have to say this because uh, it is so consistent with what the Lord spoke to me about that I need to change people's opinion of him. And I think that the worst thing that has happened, the worst slander against God is the teaching on the sovereignty of God. And did you know that that is something that is, I mean, just nearly foundational to the average Christian. They, you ask them, is God sovereign? Well, absolutely, and they believe in it. Well, I would agree that God is sovereign if you would use sovereign the way the dictionary defines it that it means independent, that he is not controlled by anybody else. Well, then I'll agree that God is sovereign, but religion has come up with a whole new definition of sovereign that you can't find in a dictionary. It's only a religious connotation that goes along with it. And religion has said sovereign means God controls everything, that he's responsible for everything that happens to you. 
And I believe that that is the worst heresy in the body of Christ. It is absolutely untrue. And that has slandered God. That has misrepresented God. You know, Ashley and Carly were up here and they mentioned their little daughter that I think it's eight years ago now that was raised up off her deathbed. The doctor sent her home to die and said that she'd never live. And they had been told that this was God that was doing this, that God was the one who was causing all of these things. And if their little daughter would have died the way that it was predicted and stuff, hopefully they would have kept serving God, but then they would have served a God who killed their little daughter for some purpose beyond their ability to see and understand. And I guarantee you that just hurts. And if, if I somehow or another could have, you know, been responsible for Hannah's death, well, then I guarantee you they wouldn't have wanted to hang around me if that's the way I treat the people that I love. They wouldn't want to be real close to me, afraid I might love them so much that I put some other terrible thing on them. But praise God, I told them the truth and their daughter got healed and today she is just healthy and happy and is an awesome little girl because they learned the truth. I was watching a television program of a preacher and he actually interviewed a woman who this woman and her daughter were abducted at gunpoint, taken out into a field. They were brutally raped and then the man made them both lay face down and shot both of them in the back of the head. The daughter died, the mother survived and came through it. She had problems, but she was still alive and she was on this television program talking about, well, God works all things together for good. We know that God had a purpose and she blamed God for rape and murder, saying that this was God that controlled it. I'm telling you, that is a lie. That is a heresy. God does not do that. God does not control everything that happens. He gave us authority over this earth and told us to rule this earth and we've made the wrong choices. We're the ones that put the devil in control. We're the ones that released death. He told us not to eat of the tree. We produced death. You will hear people say, well, it must have been their time to go as if, you know, there's just a certain day set for every person. It's not true. God is not the one that controls all of this. And I know that out of this many people, there's bound to be somebody here who is hopping mad right now thinking, <laughs> how dare you say all of this stuff? I've had people come up to me after this and say things like, you're of the devil for saying this. That's of the devil. And I just turn their own doctrine back on them and say, hey, if God is truly sovereign, I couldn't say these things, but what he wanted me to say it. If it wasn't his will, I couldn't say it. And they never come up with an answer to that. They say God is sovereign in everything except people that counter their doctrine of sovereignty. <laughs> I'm telling you, God does not control everything. He has given us tremendous freedom and liberty and our lives are messed up because we have an enemy and if we follow him, the results of that are death. If we follow the word of God, it produces life and peace. And that's the truth. And so, there are people today who've been prejudiced against God because of things that have happened to them and they blame God and think that if God was really God, he could have stopped this, he could have changed that. God is so awesome that he has given us authority and God is not the one that controls the negative things that happen in your life. God is a good God. And if what's happened to you isn't good, then it's not God. And like I said, I'm not gonna preach on this. I'm coming real close. <laughs> Let me use one passage of scripture and then in the name of Jesus, I'm gonna move on beyond this. Let's turn over to James chapter one. And these, these verses, I could preach on this for all weekend because this is such a pervasive doctrine that so many people have been influenced by. But these verses right here will just totally kill the wrong use of the sovereignty of God if you just believe James chapter one. In verse 13, it says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, He's fixing to tell you something that if you don't agree with this, you've erred. 
And he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is cometh down from the father of lights, or excuse me, is from above and cometh down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That means that there is no change, no fluctuation. This is an absolute, unqualified, unchangeable trait of God that he is the one that gives good gifts. Every good, every perfect gift comes down from God. If it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's the devil. It is one of the slickest deceptions that the devil has ever put forward to get people to say, this cancer is a blessing from God. This divorce was a blessing from God. Being gang raped and my daughter shot in the head and killed and me shot and living, that was actually God's blessing. That's a deception and a lie of the devil. That's not a blessing. It's the devil coming to steal, kill, and to destroy. Now, can something good come out of it? I'm sure that because this woman forgave the person who did this to her and to her daughter, that maybe somebody got saved. God can bring something good out of anything, but that doesn't mean God caused it. I'm nearly preaching on this. But I'm just telling you that these verses, if you believe these verses, should totally change many people's opinion about God. God is not the author of the problems. God is not the one who causes the tragedy and stuff. We have an enemy who's going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And some people say, well, he couldn't do anything if God didn't permit it. That's not anyway. I need to move on. But that's not true. We permit it. God's not the one permitting it. God allows what you allow. He gave you authority. God is not the source of our problems. I've had plenty of problems myself, but you know what? I don't blame God for them. My dad died when I was 12 years old and the pastor of the church came over and told me on Easter Sunday morning that God needed your father in heaven more than you needed him. And you know what? I didn't know any better at 12 years old, but that was a lie. God didn't take my daddy. It wasn't God who his time was up, his number was up and God took him. My dad was a chain smoker, had all kinds of problems. He died 12 years before, just about the time I was born. And he was raised from the dead because the Baptist church prayed all night long and he was raised from the dead. And he lived another 12 years, but he was invalid and he didn't take care of himself. And he smoked until the day of his death and he killed himself. God didn't kill him. Some people just can't handle this stuff. You're saying it's my fault? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're, you're saying that your dad didn't take care of himself and died because, absolutely. I'd rather say that than to say that God killed him. Mercy. Anyway, I was just gonna give honorable mention to that. But let me... I just had to say that because to me, that's the worst doctrine in the body of Christ is blaming God for everything. And it slandered him. And I tell you, you need to change your opinion. If you knew who God really was, if you knew how much he loves you, if you really understood that, you would be, you would be on fire for God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 16, that the love of Christ, or verse 15, the love of Christ constrains us. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. And if you ever understand how much God loves you, I guarantee you, you will not have to discipline yourself, force yourself to seek God. A person who isn't passionate after God with all of their heart, you do not have a good opinion of, of Jesus. You do not understand him. If you understood God, you would love him. You would serve him. You would trust him. You wouldn't have a problem. And I know some of you right now are taking offense and saying, well, you don't know how long I've been serving God. Well, there, you know, there were people that went to the tomb, but they went in total unbelief. And then they walked away from the tomb talking and saying, these things can't be. And Jesus himself walked with them in Luke chapter 24. And yet they couldn't recognize him because they were just so full of unbelief. There's people that are talking about God and semi-serving God, but they're serving him all in unbelief and they're serving him under religious tradition. And Jesus said in Mark 7, 13, that the traditions and doctrines of man make the word of God of none effect. 
And I, I'm not against church, the true church. Pastor Dwayne Sheriff is a pastor of a church. I love him and appreciate it. We were talking at lunch today about how our Bible college could help him. Tom and Maureen Anderson have been friends for a long time. We got other pastors here. I am not against the church. I am a part of the church. But I'm telling you that not everything that calls themselves church is true church. There is a lot of damage being done by people who say that they're Christians and they probably are Christians, but they aren't preaching the true gospel. They're preaching religion. Did you know it was the religious people that crucified Jesus? The secular people would have let him go. It was the religious people that crucified him and it's religion that is doing so much damage to God today. Religion is terrible. I hate religion. And much of our wrong impression about God comes from religion. And I'm gonna be countering a bunch of religious traditions and doctrines of man. And some of you may not like some of this stuff, but it's all right. Galatians 4, 16 says, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Amen. Amen. You know, I'm gonna share things from scripture. And the sad fact is most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. <laughs> but if you're one of those that says that you believe in the Bible, I challenge you to take these scriptures and even if it doesn't fit your opinion of God, go to the Word and see if these things aren't there. And take the Word and let the Word of God be the final authority in your life. Let's turn over to the book of Romans chapter five and here's where I'll use as a basis for a lot of the things that I'm saying. The book of Romans is a masterpiece by the apostle Paul teaching on grace. And I tell you, it, the grace of God is what separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. And unless you understand grace, you cannot really understand the goodness of God. There's a lot of people that have a revelation of the holiness and the wrath and the justice of God, but they do not understand the goodness of God and the grace of God because they're still living under an old covenant mentality. And the book of Romans was written to transition the church from the Old Testament law into the New Testament grace. It is a masterpiece on this and I could teach on the whole book of Romans, it's awesome. But anyway, he had already made all of these wonderful points. In the fourth chapter, he talked about Abraham and David, two of the greatest Old Testament examples. And he showed how it was the grace of God that they had relationship with him. And if you would just think about it, it's so obvious. Abraham lied about his wife twice and was willing to let a man commit adultery with his wife to save his own neck. He wound up having a sexual relationship with his wife's handmaid trying to help God's promise come to pass. Abraham blew it in a number of different ways and yet he's the only person in the Old Testament called the friend of God. If anybody would use their brain for something besides a hat rack, you could tell that it's not God, our performance that makes God love us. It's the grace of God. It was the heart of Abraham. God loved this man because he believed even when he was 100 years old and his wife was 91 years old, Abraham did not consider his own body now dead. He only thought about what God said. He had a heart of faith and it was the faith that God saw, not his performance. Matter of fact, if Abraham would have been living under the Old Testament law, according to Leviticus 18, he would have had to have been put to death because he married his half-sister, which was forbidden in Leviticus 18. And if you did it, you had to be cut off. What that word cut off means, you have to be killed. He was an ungodly man by law standards, and yet he's the one called the friend of God, the father of the Israeli race. And then David, one of the greatest kings that ever ruled. Here we are still talking about David 4,000 years later. David committed adultery and murdered the woman's husband trying to cover up his adultery. David was not a perfect man, and yet David is the man after God's own heart. I tell you, if you would just think, how in the world could we ever come up with these things that God only uses those of us that are worthy of being used? God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet. And that's the points that he's been making through the whole book. And so he says here in chapter five, verse one, after he's made all of these points, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The only way you can ever have peace with God is if you are justified. The word justified means to declare free from the guilt and penalty attached to grievous sin. Or my little layman's definition is just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. If you want to be just as if you'd never sinned, that there is no guilt, no condemnation, no feeling of unworthiness between you and God, the only way to ever be justified is by faith. And that's the only way you can have peace with God. People who are trying to earn God's favor by being good enough and praying enough and doing everything just right so that God will heal them or move in their life will never have peace. Even if you did wonderful today, tomorrow's a brand new day and you're gonna have to jump back on the treadmill and you're gonna have to perform even better tomorrow. There is never any rest. There's no freedom. There's no liberty in the law. The only way you can have peace with God is through being justified by faith. In verse two, it says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. The only way you can access the grace of God is by faith. It's not by performance. It's not by you doing everything just right. There's a message in every one of these verses. Let me jump on down to verse eight. This is a verse that is often taken out of context and misapplied. It says, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now that's an absolute true statement, but often we will take that verse and just make a statement that God loves sinners. God commends his love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. And that's true. But the point, if you take it in its context, isn't about how God commended his love towards you and that while you were a sinner, he died for you. The point is that if God loved you so much while you were a sinner that he died for you, then verse nine is the point, much more than being now justified by his blood, you shall be saved from wrath through him. The point that's being made is, that since Jesus loved you so much that he died for you while you were yet a sinner, much more does he love you now. That's not, that point isn't usually made with this verse. They will just talk about God loves the sinner, but then let that sinner get saved and go to church. And now, man, if you don't read your Bible every day, if you don't do everything just right, God's gonna let you stew in your own juice. He's gonna let you suffer the consequences because you haven't done everything just right. Man, if you would have applied that same logic to getting saved, you would have never been born again. It says in Colossians chapter two, verse six, it says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Jesus? Was it after you had been fasting and praying? Were you holy? Had you been going to church and living such a godly life that God looked at you and said, oh man, he's doing great. I think I'm gonna save him in response to his goodness. No, God looked at you and we were all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you came to him with, you know, uh, just as I am without one plea. But that your blood was shed for me. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. And we threw ourselves on the mercy of God. Colossians 2, 6 is saying, if that's the way you received him, that's the way you need to continue to receive from him. But instead, we have emphasized God's love for the sinners so much. And then as soon as they get saved, we start telling, now you better start coming to church. You better pay your tithes. You better study the word. You better love your wife. You better do this. You better do this, this, this. And if you don't do it, God won't answer your prayers. If we would have told people that before they got saved, they would have never been able to receive salvation if they had to live up to all of these standards. But instead they came and they put their faith in Jesus and that's the reason it was so easy to get saved. But after you go to church, and again, I'm not against the good church, I'm talking about the religious stuff that's telling you that unless you do this and this, God won't bless you. Unless you pay your tithes, God's gonna do all of these things and curse you. And, and if you're listening to that, what that does, that puts the burden of salvation back on you instead of on a savior. And this is saying just the opposite. And these two thoughts are combined in verse 10. It says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved from wrath or saved by his life. And so the point that's being made is 
that if we were reconciled when we hadn't done anything, we weren't going to church and paying our tithes and living holy before you got saved, and if God saved you in that deplorable state, then how much more should you expect God to heal you now, to answer your prayers, to be with you, to bless you, to enjoy you? But see, we've been taught that, man, you gotta be holy and you gotta do all of these things for God to love you. How holy were you when you got saved? You were totally unholy. Matter of fact, it says right here in the fourth chapter, I think it's around verse five, it says that God gave himself for the ungodly. Unless you admit you're ungodly, you can't get saved. God only saves ungodly people. He doesn't have any godly people to save. And yet we're told after you get saved that you now gotta be godly and holy and you gotta be worthy. You know, I have people come to me all of the time and they believe that God can do miracles. That's the reason they come. They've heard me testify. I had one man tell me today about that. Uh, he said, I was the greatest cure for insomnia that he had ever seen in his life. <laughs> he said, I couldn't believe this. But he got the listening and uh, anyway, he got turned on and he, he said, when I mentioned something about seeing my son raised from the dead after being dead for four hours, that got his attention and he started listening. He believed in miracles. I have people that hear stories and so they come because they believe in miracles. But when I go to saying, all right, God's gonna heal you, they waver because they have this concept about God, a wrong opinion about God that he only heals people who are worthy to be healed. That you somehow or another have to be worthy of it. You have to deserve God's favor. And I tell you, that is a misrepresentation of God. That's what these verses are saying. You weren't worthy of being saved. God saved you because of his great love for you, not because you were lovely. And God heals you not because you are lovely or worthy of being healed, it's because he loves you. And all you gotta do is humble yourself and receive it as a gift. So that's what all of these things are saying. In verse 11, it says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Boy, there is a message in that. I hadn't got time to teach on this, but. Basically, the body of Christ believes that the atonement is still to be appropriated, that it was paid for, but it's not gonna be re realized until we all get to heaven. When we all get to heaven, what a day that will be, and we're just holding on until we can go to heaven, and then we start walking in our fullness of our redemption. No, the atonement has been made, and we now receive it. Every, Jesus told us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven to see the supernatural power of God and to have joy and to have peace and to have vision and to have hope and to have all of these things. Man, God is not only great in the sweet by and by, but also in the rough now and now. Amen. Praise God. And so we have now received the atonement. And look at this in verse 12, it says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Boy, there's a lot in these verses. I'm just picking out some little things. You need to study this. But this again, knocks in the head so much of religion's teaching. Religion basically is saying that God deals with you proportional to your sin. Or you could say it on a positive way, he will move in your life proportional to your performance. If you do good, then you get good and stuff like this. This is saying that sin entered the world through one man. It is not what you do that makes you a sinner. You were born a sinner. And I probably am not gonna get to this, the rest of this tonight, but the rest of this week I will. There are five different times in the remainder of this chapter that it makes this comparison that you became a sinner through one man. You became defiled through one man. You became condemned through one man. And you have been reconciled through one man. And you have been freed from all of these things. 
Religion has preached that God is dealing with you individually based on your performance and it's all about how you live and God is going to move in your life directly proportional to your performance. That is a total misrepresentation of God. And I I thank you for that one amen. (laughs) And I'm sure some of you are thinking, no way. Well... Again, I encourage you to just stick with the message, stick with these scriptures, take these things I'm talking about and compare it to the word instead of just tradition. But this is a radical statement right here. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And then there's this parenthetical phrase in uh, verse 13 down through verse 17. And it says in verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. You know, that is one of the most radical statements in the Bible in my estimation. The things that God has shown me about him You know, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but I was raised in a Christian home. I got born again when I was eight years old. I've served the Lord my whole life. I became uh, totally committed to God, the best I understood, but I was raised under this paradigm or this view of God that God was a harsh, punishing God. God's the one that killed my dad. God judged people. I was raised under the old covenant view and attitude of God. And then on March the 23rd, 1968, I had an encounter with God where I was really smug about my holiness and how awesome I was. And I was, uh, anyway, it's a long story. And God just opened up my eyes and showed me what an absolute hypocrite I was. And he showed me my self-righteousness and showed me that self-righteousness is the worst sin of all. I believe self-righteousness, trusting in your goodness is worse than homosexuality. I believe it's worse than adultery, lying, murder. Because you know, adulterers and murderers, and they recognize that they're sinners and they know that they need help, but a self-righteous person is trusting in themselves and in an, in an effect, they're saying that they don't need Jesus. And that's the worst sin of all. And anyway, God just showed me my total self-righteousness. And at the time, I I thought that God gave you what you deserved and I deserved to die. And I fully expected God to kill me, but before he killed me, I was going to confess every sin I could think of. I was going to name everything hopeful that he wouldn't send me to hell. And in front of the pastor and the leaders of this church, all of my friends... I spent an hour and a half confessing things that I didn't even know were wrong before I got under this light of God where he was illuminating these things. And I just confessed everything I could think of, turned myself inside out. And finally, I just quit because there was nothing else to confess. I had confessed not only the things I'd done, but the things I'd thought about, the things I'd desired. I confessed everything. There was nothing left. And I was just laying on the floor in this puddle of tears waiting on God to kill me. And instead of killing me, I had this supernatural love of God come over me. And for four and a half months, I was just caught up in the presence of God. And I knew that God loved me. And it was wonderful, but it was really confusing because I'd been taught that God loves you when you're worth loving. And for the first time in my life, I'd realized there wasn't anything good in me. And I know some of you think I'm dramatizing this and making it bigger than it was, but you weren't there. I was. (laughs) And I saw all of my righteousness as filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64, I think, says that. And I mean, there there wasn't anything good in me. And I didn't have one claim to the goodness of God. And yet God loved me and poured supernatural love out in my life. And I enjoyed it, but it was really confusing. And after four and a half months, there's reasons for this, I won't go into it, but after four and a half months, the emotion of this wore off and I had to go back to what I believed and what I thought as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 
Proverbs 23, 7. I couldn't just go by feelings anymore. And you know what? My thoughts, the way I was taught was so contrary to what I experienced. It caused a huge turmoil in me. And it took me two or three years before God began to explain some things to me. And anyway, I said all of that to say that this verse 13 is one of these scriptures that like, if you were gonna hang something on this wall, you would have to put an anchor, a nail, or some kind of a thing there, and then hang that picture or something on that. Well, this verse 13 is one of those points that I hang so much of the revelation that God has given me on this one verse. This is just a foundational passage of scripture for me and the things that God has shown me. And that is that until the law, Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now I've got to give some definitions here because the word impute is a word that we don't use a lot today and it doesn't mean much to most people. But the word impute is an accounting term and it just means to record, to put on the books. Or today we could use it an example of a credit card that when you use a credit card, you aren't actually paying for the merchandise that you're getting. What you're doing, you give them that credit card and that metallic strip on it has your information on there. And they take that information and they bill your credit card company and then your credit card company bills you and you pay for it when you get the bill and then you respond to the credit card company. When you give them that information, that credit card, you didn't pay for it, you just had it imputed unto you. That's exactly what that's talking about. So we still have the same concept today, we just don't use that terminology, but when you give a credit card, you're having it imputed unto you. And this is saying that sin was in the world before the law, but when there isn't any law, sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now that, again, if you're, if you're tracking with me, this has to totally change your concept about God. Because here's basically what the church has been teaching, that God was holy and he created man holy. And when man became unholy, immediately holy God could not tolerate unholy man. And there was this huge gulf between God and man. And God started immediately imputing, holding people's sins against them. And, and that's basically the way that it, we've been taught. I'm gonna go into more detail. I won't have time tonight, but in the book of Genesis, I'll show you that most people believe that God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden because he was so angry at them that he couldn't tolerate them. That's the opposite of what the Bible says. That's not what it teaches. God was not imputing man's sins unto them, their trespasses unto them until the time that the law was given. And then when the law was given, God did impute, hold people's sins against them and dealt with sin very harshly. But if you are familiar with Bible history, it was about, <coughs> excuse me, about 2,000 years after the fall of man before the law was given. And the law was only temporary until the seed should come. This is Galatians chapter three says that, and that seed, Galatians 3:16, is Jesus. The law was only until Jesus came. It was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, but we aren't under the law anymore. So we've had approximately 6,000 years of human history since the fall of Adam. The first 2,000, God was not imputing their sins unto them. Then for 2,000 years, he did impute their sins unto them. And since the time of Jesus, are you, uh, let's see, where are we? Look over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and let me just read this verse to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself. Again, this is the same terminology as Romans chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, where it says we have now received the atonement Reconciliation isn't something that just takes place when we get to heaven. We have now been reconciled unto him. 
uh, in verse 18, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So it says here that Jesus was not imputing men's trespasses unto them. When the, where there is no law, sin is not imputed. And you can put this together. I'm putting a lot of things together right now, but I'll try and come back and make this more orderly maybe tomorrow. This is my introduction. But it says in the book of uh, John chapter one that the law and the prophets were until John, but grace and truth came by Jesus. The law was only temporary, 2,000 years after the fall of Adam until the seed should come, until Jesus. The law has not been in effect for the last 2,000 years. We should not have been living under it. God has not been imputing man's sins unto them, but religion has. Religion has been holding people's sins. And the average Christian believes that if they die, they will go to be with the Lord. But in this life, they believe God can do things for them, but they don't believe he's already done it. They don't believe, they don't have confidence that it'll come to pass because they've been taught that he is imputing sin unto them that they is holding sin against them. If you aren't perfect, if you have any flaws in your life, God won't answer your prayer. That's having sin imputed unto you. But the truth is God isn't imputing our trespasses unto us. And a lack of understanding this has caused people to misunderstand God. Let me give you another example that I had these horses that were given to me and, and then the, the uh, foals of these, I had two mares given to me and then these mares had two foals. And uh, these, uh, these horses were about three years old by the time that they offered me these, uh, the foals out of these mares. And um, the people were moving and they had to get rid of these horses and they had tried to sell them. Nobody wanted to buy them. They were Arabians. One of them was an Arabian. The other one was kind of a hybrid, a bunch of different stuff. But this Arabian was a beautiful horse. It was named El Shaddai which means more than enough. <laughs> this horse was more than enough. And these people had just let these horses run wild. They had put a halter on El Shaddai when it was a, a yearling and nobody had touched it in two years. And so this horse had grown and the halter was growing into its muzzle. It was beginning to deform uh, the face of this horse. They were gonna move and uh, they had to get rid of these horses. They couldn't sell them. And so they said, we'll give them to you if you want them. So I said, man, I want them. So I, was, I went and I paid two cowboys $350 a piece to catch these horses and break them. And it sent both of the cowboys to the hospital. And they gave me back my money. It says, we don't want it. These horses were totally wild. And so I only had one week before these people were moving. And if we couldn't catch these horses and move them, then they were going to have to kill these horses and put them down. They were going to call the Humane Society. And so uh, I prayed about it and Jamie was with me. And anyway, it's a long story. I won't give you all the gory details, but I caught those horses. And uh, the one that was named El Shaddai, I had a railroad tie sunk in the middle of this pasture. And uh, anyway, I, I put this uh, rope over the uh, El Shaddai's head. It was a, I tricked it. I'm not a cowboy much, so I just put a stiff rope around this bucket and for a week I put oats in that bucket and it would let me get about as close as from here to this front row and, and it'd let me stand that close to it and I just fed it out of this bucket for about a week and then I put the rope and put dirt and grass over it and when it stuck its head down in that five gallon bucket, I just flopped it over there and, <laughs> and caught it and anyway, when I did, El Shaddai became demon possessed. And this horse, and let me just say, if you're a horse lover, don't get mad at me. I didn't know what was gonna happen and I wouldn't have done this if I'd have known what was gonna happen. I was trying to save this horse's life. And so anyway, I caught this horse and when I did, that horse just took off at a dead run. I mean, it went about 20 or 30 feet and that rope grabbed hold and flipped this horse over on its back, all four legs in the air. 
And then it got up and it started going wild and it was pitching and bucking and trying to get loose and it was spitting things out of its mouth and nostrils and out the other end. And I tried to actually go cut the rope. Jamie was there and I mean, we were so scared that we thought this horse was gonna kill itself and I was gonna cut the rope and let it go. But I couldn't get in there. It was going around that railroad tie so quick I could have gotten trampled on it. So anyway, we just had to stand there and watch this horse for 20 minutes or 30, whatever it was. And finally, this horse just totally wore itself out. It leaned as far as it could away from that thing and that rope, it was a slip knot type thing, lasso, and it choked the horse and it just passed out and fell on the ground. And so when it did, I went and sat on the horse's neck and put a new halter top on it and tied it in between two railroad ties. And when it finally regained consciousness and stood up, it was broken. You could ride that horse. And that horse was terrified of me. This was an Arabian, it was a beautiful looking horse. And it would stand there and it's, it just had an arched neck. It was a beautiful horse. And it would see my green pickup coming a quarter of a mile away. And it'd put its head down and it'd go to shaking just like this. Every time you rode this horse, it'd just be shaking like this the whole time. And that horse was petrified of me. And I talked to this horse. I sang to this horse. I explained to this horse what was going on. I spent hours trying to convince this horse that I was really not a bad guy. But it just was convinced that I was gonna kill his horse if it ever did anything wrong. And, and anyway, the reason I do all, say all of that is that see, God got misrepresented, not through something that didn't happen. He did give the law. But the law wasn't given to set us free. It wasn't given to help us. It was given to hurt us. It was given to destroy us. It was given to catch us, ensnare us, just like these horses. I had to catch them and remove them where they were, were for their own good. They were going to die if they didn't do it. And it wasn't really me that caused this horse all this pain. It was that horse's rebellion at what I did that caused all of the problem. Likewise, it's not the law that God gave, it's our rebellion at the law, our inability to keep the law that caused all of the problem. And it has left people with an impression that God is this harsh, mean, angry God that if you pick up sticks on the Sabbath day, God's gonna kill you. If you do the slightest thing wrong, if you hit the rock instead of talk to it, God's gonna let you die in the wilderness. And on and on you can go with all of these examples. And it was true that those things happened, but that happened under the Old Testament law. And this verse, Romans 5, 13, for me just changed everything because it showed me that before the law was given, God wasn't dealing with people based on their sin. And since the time of Jesus, God isn't dealing with people based on sin. And as a whole, the church does not understand this. Just one example of this is that, you know, I used to say this all of the time when I was praying for revival. And I used to tell people, I said, if God doesn't judge America, he's gonna have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because America has become as corrupt and as vile as Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know, that's a true statement that we have become that way. I mean, we now are bragging about and promoting homosexuality and stuff like this, which was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. But, you know, because of the New Testament and because God has placed all of his wrath upon Jesus, and I now say, understanding the gospel, that if God does judge America, he's gonna have to apologize to Jesus. Because Jesus paid for the sins of America. And yet you will hear the average Christian today saying that God is judging America. God is gonna punish us. God is gonna turn us over to all of these things. Nope, God isn't gonna do it. God has already punished Jesus for our sins. Does that mean that there's no consequences? No, the devil will exact the price. There's still a wages of sin and that's death and Satan is more than willing to accommodate us. We're in the process of destroying ourselves. America needs a revival, but God is not gonna judge America. God judged Jesus in America's place. And God is not the one who's forsaken America. America's the one who's forsaken God. 
It's like if you've got a big umbrella and you know it's raining and you're standing under this big umbrella, you could be dry. And if you walk out from under the umbrella, don't blame the person with the umbrella for making you wet. You're the one that walked out from under that protection. God's blessing has been on the United States and it's still on the United States to the degree that we will allow him to. But when we just meet, uh, intentionally go against everything that God says and flaunt our sins in his face and brag about it, I guarantee you, you're walking out from under his protection. That's the reason we had the terrorist attacks. Not that God brought them as judgment on America. It's because we've forsaken him. We kicked him out of our schools, kicked prayer and the Bible out of our schools. And this is the results. We've lost that protection because we don't want it as a whole, as a nation. It's not God that's forsaken us. It's not God that's punishing us. We've forsaken him. So there's still consequences to sin. And I'm going to be talking about that. But I'm telling you that God is in Christ not imputing your trespasses unto you. God is not dealing with you based on your sin. We have a Savior. And if you have a Savior, when you say in the name of Jesus, then that means that you get what Jesus deserves and not what you deserve. And this is the ministry that it says that Jesus had, and it's also the ministry that has been given to us as ministers, is this ministry of reconciliation. The word reconcile means to make friendly again or to bring back into harmony. God has reconciled us unto himself through his son by punishing his son for what you and I deserve. And God is willing to deal with you totally on the basis of what Jesus deserves and not what you deserve. Man, that is wonderful news. That is awesome news. That is, that's nearly too good to be true news. But that is absolutely true. And I'm telling you, as a whole, brothers and sisters, the body of Christ does not understand this. And they take things that are scriptural examples. And it has confused the image of God. Not because anything God ever did was wrong, but because of our inability to understand. We're in a sense like that horse. That yeah, something happened. And when I showed up, this horse nearly died. But it wasn't me that did all of that. It was a horse's rebellion at me that did all of that. But nonetheless, it just was afraid of me and I didn't do anything to hurt that horse. That horse hurt itself. Likewise, it's not God who's done all of these terrible things. He's not against us, he's for us. There was a reason that the Old Testament law was given for a specific period of time. And praise God, we aren't under the law today. And if you could receive the things that I'm gonna be sharing with you this weekend, I guarantee you, it will change your opinion of God and how God sees you and how he views you. And you need that, all of us need it. You know, the Lord has been showing me these things for 40 something years and yet, uh, unless I minister this to myself on a regular basis, I wind up being drawn back into this thing of thinking, oh God, I'm not doing enough. I, how could you ever use me in all of this? You know, it's like gravity. Gravity, when you fly, never ceases to function. It's still functioning. You just have applied the greater law of thrust and lift that allow you to fly in that plane. But you turn off those engines, and I guarantee you, gravity is still there, and it'll pull you down. And this law of sin and death, Romans chapter eight, verse two says that the, the uh, law of the spirit of life hath made us free from the law of sin and death. That's the Old Testament law. That law is still there. It's still functioning. And unless you're constantly applying the truths of the gospel and walking in the freedom and the liberty and constantly applying that, I guarantee you it's still there and it'll pull you down. The moment you think you got this figured out and that you don't need to listen to the gospel anymore, <laughs> you're gonna fall. It will pull you back in and you have to constantly minister this to yourself because there is no, uh, there's no role model for this. The only thing in the universe that is 100% grace-based is what Jesus did for us. You know, marriages should be by grace. We ought to love our wife the way that Christ loved the church. He didn't love the church because we were so lovely. He loved us because we were so needy. 
and he died for us, and that while we were yet a sinner, he died for us and gave his life. And that's how God loved us. So that's the way we're supposed to love our mate. And yet, I couldn't tell you how many times I've had people come to me for marriage counseling when I start telling them about loving their wife. Well, I would, but, and then they tell me what she's done. And she's not worth loving. She did this wrong. And, she, and sad thing is, most people love their mate proportional to how their mate is performing. When you go to work, you can't, you can't take what I'm saying and then go to work next Monday and say, hey, I heard this guy preaching. You know what? I've now found out that it's all by grace. And so it doesn't matter how I act. I might or might not show up for work. I might or might not work. I think I'll just do what I want to and I fully expect everything by grace. That's not how employment works. If you don't perform, you get fired or you get punished or disciplined. That's not how families work. You don't treat your kids, you know, just based on, on the fact that they're your kids 100%. You deal with them on performance. If you don't make up your bed, if you don't do this, you don't get this reward. Everything in the whole human race is performance oriented, but when it comes to God, it's not. Amen. It's all based on what Jesus has done and not what you've done. And I tell you, unless you make a deliberate effort to get hold of this truth and then minister it to yourself and encourage yourself with it on a daily basis, you will fall back into the same condemnation. It's still there. And so I believe that this is necessary. And so all the stuff that I've said here tonight is just introduction. And then tomorrow, I'm gonna get into the meat of this and start showing you how it is that God did not impute man's sins unto them for the first 2,000 years and how he has not been imputing sins unto people for the last 2,000 years. Out of 6,000 years of human history, two-thirds of it has been in grace, not imputing people's trespasses unto them. And yet, the law and this ministration of wrath and condemnation is the dominant view most people have of God. They think that that is the true nature and character of God. And yet 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 says, God is love. That is his true nature and character. There's a reason why God punished sin so harshly. And anyway, I'm going to be trying to share that tomorrow. So I encourage you to come back. If you can't come back, I know not everybody's going to be here every service. Again, you can go online and you can get these services after the fact or they're putting out these little MP3 things that will have all of the services on there. You could somehow or another order that, can't you? Yes, sir. And CDs and DVDs. All right, CDs and DVDs. You need to get this because honestly, this will change your opinion of God and how he deals with mankind. And it's imperative. How can two walk together except they be agreed. If you have a misunderstanding of the nature and the character of God, it's going to hamper your relationship with Him. You're going to be um, imputing things to God that are not accurate. And you need to get an accurate representation of who God is and how He deals with you. And I tell you, this will change your life. I really, really believe that. Praise God. So, Father, I pray over this and I just speak these words to the people that are here and we ask the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and give us understanding. Help us to understand this. Father, I know that I've countered some things tonight and I believe that you would help people to make the decision, Romans 3, 4, to let God be true and every man a liar. To let God be true in every doctrine that they've been taught a lie if it doesn't line up with the Word of God. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just do that and we believe for a mighty deliverance, a mighty deliverance from the traditions and doctrines of men that make the Word of God of none effect. Thank you, Father. And Father, I pray that you use just the few things that I've said here tonight and Father, use that to just minister your love to people that people who have felt like they failed so badly that how could you ever use them? Father, I pray that the good news would just explode in their heart, that you aren't loving them based on their performance, but it's just based on whether or not they will accept Jesus, whether they will put their faith in Jesus and what he did for them. Father, we thank you for that. And I believe that there is liberty. I just speak liberty to people that the word of God 
is setting them free. We agree and receive that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let me ask you tonight that if you don't know Jesus... We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.